I've touted the inside track before. Yes, guilty as charged. But this really is an amazing interview. PR is, for many of us in business, a black box. A dark art of achieving editorial over advertorial. Earn versus paid, or authenticity versus concoction. Lara Carey is an ex-ABC journalist who was one of the forerunners in crossing over from media to media advisory. Her networks are significant, her entrepreneurial curiosity unbounded, and her depth of knowledge on both creating good PR and dealing with PR nightmares actually is unbelievable. I've taken pages of insights from this interview, and you won't be disappointed with our deep dive into company values, storytelling, the value that PR can even add to company boards, messaging for crisis management, editorial relations, and more. If you don't get value from listening to Lara's first-hand knowledge of how to communicate as a business and draw inspiration from her own entrepreneurial journey, then I say you're missing a massive opportunity. Enjoy our discussion. Lara Carey, welcome to Discipline. Thank you. Great to be here. Now, you started your career as an ABC journalist yes. and did 10 years there. Was this, a, was this a dream job for Lara Carey? It was a dream job, but straight out, out of school. So I don't think, you know, you had. I mean, I'd always wanted to be a journalist and I uh, was the last, I think the last cadet the ABC took on who didn't have a degree. And I remember my parents marching into the newsroom to speak to the editor and say that I had to do this degree because they thought at 17 I had no idea what I actually wanted to do uh, and said the deal was I had to go to university while I was doing a cadetship, but it was absolutely, I didn't want to do anything else. Brilliant. So why did you jump after 10 years from journalism into public relations? I think it didn't feel like a jump. Um, they were off, the, the ABC, as it does from time to time, offered redundancies. I had done time working in the radio newsroom. I'd done some programming. I'd been a TV reporter. I'd done some news reading. And it sort of felt like I could do with a challenge, a new challenge. And it felt like the right time. Um, and I had no idea what was out there. And, it, it, and having, you know, that moment in time with no dependence, um, it felt like I could take a risk and I didn't know what the next step was going to be and I ended up kind of drifting into a different part of communications. And was it something you'd seen while you'd been at the ABC that you'd seen public relations and uh, the PR industry and thought, oh, I've, that's a good fit for me? Or, again, did this you just take this leap of faith and... No, it certainly wasn't the industry it is today. So, you know, I, as a journalist, had a little black book, which was a book <laughs> um, with the names and the numbers of ministers personally. Um, they didn't have these gatekeepers, you know, yep. that we see today. Um, I think, look, the person who, at a, you know, I credit kind of, there were two people who I credit with uh, my jump, if you call it that. One was uh, I was a court reporter and yep. um, Bill Shorten was then at Morris Blackburn yep. and we had a bit to do with each other, you know, on the rounds and he said to me one day, can you come and go through our files and let me know which would be the ones that would be best for media attention? Um, and I said, oh, you know, sure. He said, we'll pay you. And I said, sure, how many files have you got? And he said, oh, about you know, 20,000. That sounds like fun. Yeah, exactly. And I went, no, I'm not spending my weekend doing that. But what I can do is teach you what to look for. And so I didn't even, I don't think there was a media training industry, but I kind of created a program to teach 
the lawyers at Morris Blackburn how to recognise what would be interesting for the media. Yes. So well, that was certainly so, got they've certainly got the hang of that. Yeah. <laughs> so that was one like, kind of pivotal moment, and the other one was um, when I interviewed and I only heard this backstory later but James McKenzie um, who's you know now quite a well-known chair of a lot of organizations but he became the CEO of the TAC yeah and his advisor at the time was someone I used to work with at the ABC but he was preparing James for an interview and he was prepping him with questions and then sort of said well look some bastard might ask you and throw in a question and then apparently, unbeknownst to me, I was the bastard that asked that question. And afterwards, James wanted to meet me and then kind of started talking to me about going to, you know, what we call the dark side. Yes. But I kind of was very, not really that interested. And he kept saying, this is what you should be doing. Yeah. And prompted that in my head. Yeah, right. And, it, and it's still considered the dark side now from those ABC uh, halls to, to jump across into the corporate sphere or? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's. The poacher turned gamekeeper. Yeah. Um, and why then start your own shop? Why not look for someone else to, you know, learn the ropes in that particular industry? Or as you say, maybe it didn't exist back then. I don't, yeah, I, I think there were in-house PRs, but consulting, there were the big agencies. Hill and that Alton were, and those. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and at one point I did end up with one of those. Um, but I think... My skill set, and in those days, really, there weren't a lot of journalists who were doing this, and it was very much about um, crisis management, message management, editorial relations. But there was a time, um, I mean, after I'd been out for a while, I did end up in a business that James McKenzie was the CEO of at Artist Services, which was Steve Vizard's organisation. Okay, yeah. And it was becoming a bigger beast. Um, and I had staff who were reporting to me. And I remember going out, and I, I was always very creative. And we'd go out and see someone, and I'd go, oh, yes, we can do a competition, and we can do this, we can do that. And then leaving the meeting, and, you know, one of my staffers would say, would you like me to get a permit for the competition? I had no idea you needed one. I go, yes, yep, that would be great, you know. So I learned so much from yeah. people who were trained in PR and sort of made it up as I went along until I knew what I was doing. Yeah. Now, that actually takes me back to a very bad place at a law firm I worked at where I actually had to put together a table of all the different regulations for all the different permits for these things in all the different states. They're all different. Yes, terribly boring. And I think Horrible. that was the attraction of consulting because – I didn't ever have the attention span to do all of the work in one organisation. Yeah. I'm really interested in a lot of things, but probably superficially. Yeah. <laughs> and I love the fact that I get exposed, wow, I didn't know there was this issue, this industry. Um, I mean, I always likened it to when I was a court reporter, you know, going in and out of courts. If it was boring and the legal argument wasn't going to be interesting to me, it wasn't going to be interesting to the listeners yeah. who didn't make news. And so this way also I can just get the exciting bits. Yeah, it seems also there's a lot of high-level strategy around PR anyway. Like there's a lot of – there is a lot of detail, but at the end of the day you're looking at, uh, an, I guess, an overarching strategy of how to move some of these pieces and get messages across that will meet a corporate objective rather than getting into the detail, which is, which is when you get these terrible exposés, I'm sure. Yes, partly, unless you're called in because there has been a terrible expose. Right. We'll get to that as well. Um, and also now in your career, you're looking at um, you know, being on different boards and, and not-for-profits. What's the, what's the personal attraction to these kind of positions? I think, um, I mean, the, the first board position I had, I, I kind of, I was invited on and didn't really understand what it was about. 
and found it so interesting being able to have a, a lens of, I mean, I always, I always now bring sort of the risk, the communications elements. And I think um, when I sort of started what I didn't think of as a board career, but it was, you know, a contribution. Firstly, it was really exciting to contribute and to understand that I was having an impact on something that was broader than just, you know, was with Food Bank Victoria. Yeah. So I could have volunteered and packed boxes as I have with many organisations, but this was different. This was kind of going, I can have a, a real impact on the future of something that is so much bigger than that. So that was firstly really exciting. Yeah. And then I realised that my skill set was really unique around a board table. And, it, you know, traditionally you think of they always go for, you know, lawyers and, and, and accountants and auditors <laughs> and, yes, and they're really super important. And sometimes I will sit there going, I have nothing to add on this MOU or, you know, something that, that's going on that's either legal or deeply financial. But then something happens where I'm going, hang on, there is something to take into account, whether it's an issue of risk or a way of promoting or yeah. a way of partnering that nobody else understood. Yeah. And it, I really could make a contribution and I was interested. Yeah, great. I mean, yeah, lo- I guess a lot of that is risk mitigation and compliance at a board level. So a lot of these opportunities in marketing and promotion often get overlooked. Yes, sometimes that's right. And or boards are so risk averse, they're not answering questions they should be ask, answering. They're not asking themselves the question, like, yes. are, we, are we okay? You know, they're sort of just going through, well, have we ticked all the boxes? Not what's this going to look like in the court of public opinion? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's one part of it, definitely. But the other part of it is in every category, in every sector, it's a competitive environment. Yeah. And so, you know, oftentimes no one's looking at, well, what is our brand? What is the value of the brand? What does it stand for? Where are we differentiated? They might as a business or as a product, but actually how to tell that story is not usually part of the narrative around a board table, and it should be. Yeah. And without wanting to sound like a a job interview, how do you go from, you know, the newsroom being a journalist to a boardroom? What's the sort of skill set that set you apart on that journey do you think that some of your contemporaries that may still be journalists it's funny i was talking to quite a prominent journalist about this the other day someone who is a good friend who wants to sort of look at maybe spread it you know going into some other area and today we've got more kind of out of work or not necessarily not contracted journalists than we've ever had the thing is when you're a journalist, you know, you're just looking at the next story and there's a real rush of getting a great story and doing the interview, but then, you know, you're on to the next thing and the yep. next thing. And I think that um, a lot of journalists don't have the appetite for the for business. Yeah. Me um, my partner in our business, you know, used to run the Seven Newsroom. Before that, he ran Today Tonight. He is amazing, you know, and that they were businesses. But coming into a consulting environment has been a big stretch and he's stepped up amazingly, but it, it's not a skill set that you have. Yeah. And so you either want to do that and, you know, learn, learn about it, it yeah. and throw yourself into it. And I think it's just, A, a stretch too far and too hard for most. Yeah. And those that do do it are preferring to come into the comfort of a big organization or authority or a government department where they've got a paycheck every, you know because yeah. that's what they're used to yeah yeah look i've only ever been well not only ever been last 20 years in, involved in startups and whenever a young person comes through the door or even someone senior that's looking for a job i would say you realize this is different to a corporate there's no safety nets mm-hmm. there's no there's no hiding from 
things you need to do, uh, they need to be done. And I've had a lot of people think about it and come back and say, you know what, it's not for me. Yes, that's right. You need to be part salesman. You need to be an entrepreneur. You need to be creative and you need to be strategic. And then sometimes you've got to get your hands dirty. You need to work. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so what about this domain expertise you've got then in this field, broad field of uh, public relations? I suppose you could define it in a number of different ways. But, you know, tell me, what what is it? As a consultant, you get to walk into an organisation and you get to, I, I, I describe it that I'm the one that's often telling the employee he's got no clothes on. Yeah. I mean, you've got, you know, I talk about it as two types of clients often. The organisations that think everything they do is so exciting and interesting. And when you say, yeah, that's a good ad, but how does it differentiate you as a story? They can't express that. And so it's working with them to go, no, you must, you do. Let's work through this. Or there's those that think nothing's interesting because it's just business as usual. And you walk in going, this is amazing. What you're doing is incredible. Yeah. So there are, on the PR side, there are those and it's, you know, it's really our job to extract the interesting, um, the hyperbole. That's why I really have a hard time working with lawyers because they're the ones that go, well, hang on, it's not strictly right. Yes, Take it, put the lid back on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And even in, you know, in where you do have a crisis situation, the lawyer's the one going, oh, don't say that. And it's often like, why? Why can't you apologise for something that went wrong? Yes. It doesn't mean, you know, you're paying out millions of dollars. You're just saying we're sorry it happened. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's that part of it. It's trying to actually talk about it's crafting the story. I mean, you know, it's called spin doctoring. Yeah. But you never say anything that isn't true, but the truth isn't one story. Yeah. The truth is your version of the story, and that's true in life as well. Yeah. I find that with my teenage daughters all the yeah, time, yeah. telling me what I said where that's not what I thought I said. And so it's finding a way of telling a truthful story in a way that is either sympathetic to the company or brings out the best or explains how they're differentiated and putting them above the pack. That's interesting. Someone once, I think early on in my career, explained, and I think they were from Hill and Knowlton, um, explained PR to me as a bipolar type of role because you're either at one end, you know, you say hyperbole at one end, trying to uh, blow the trumpet from the mountain of how good this company is, and at the other end you are trying to put a lid on it when something goes horribly wrong and the, the shit hits the fan. Mm. You're trying to say, actually, it's not that bad. You know, there's, yes. you know, there's really nothing to see here. But what they wanted to do was be involved in this particular business with the middle ground and continue to feed the market a narrative which engages at a different level. So is that is that something I need to get if I'm a business and there's no hyperbole or no uh, car crash? You know, how do I, I maximise PR at at this point in the business? Well, I think it's looking at what makes you unique. Like how can you tell your story that is different to your... What, if I can replace your name with someone else's, there isn't a story there. You know, what do you bring... And we talk about it as it's overused now, but, you know, thought leadership. Um, if you don't have a leadership position, you can't tell me what's happening in your industry, where it's going. You, you don't really probably have a commentary role there. Um, and that's the hardest because... A lot of people think that, you know, PR is smoke and mirrors because you can buy an ad. You know exactly what the ad's got in it and you know where it's going to sit, whether it's in the paper or on the, on the web or whatever. Whereas with earned media um, and shared media, you know, you don't know where the, – the variables are too great. Yeah. And so you give it your best shot, but it's interesting because something that's newsworthy one day may not be the next day yeah. for a whole lot of reasons that you can't control. 
And so it's people going into that knowing they've just got to keep telling their stories. Yes. They've got to keep engaging yep. um, with the media that's relevant to their industry. They've got to keep thinking ahead of the curve and keep thinking differently um, and and keep telling the stories in the way that, that is authentic. Yeah. And from a company's point of view, I mean, some companies have dry, let's say, lawyers running mm-hmm. the company. Others have more sort of, um, you know, Richard Branson-type personalities running the company. And they're, to me, they lend themselves and they're more conducive to PR-type people. But do you need in a company a spokesperson that can tell a story that engages uh, the audience and the, the customers as well as the journalists as, so that they're drawn to this you know, a m- magnetic person? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't have to be the person that's magnetic, but you've got to be able to take people along with the story. So we do a lot of you know, newsflash media does presentation training as well as media training. And the presentation training is interesting because we often are called in to, you know, help CEOs or executives go through speeches that have been prepared by someone else. Number one, often it's just not in their language or it's not something that they feel comfortable saying. And sometimes, you know, we use a technique where we go, just tell me. Tell me what you're trying, what is this story? And they say it in their words and so much better than yeah. what's been scripted. Yeah. And, you know, when they do the town halls and they do, I mean, particularly that internal communication at big companies, you've got to be able to engage and it's not a matter of standing up there and, you know, being safe and motherhood because people will go, right, I've That's, attended that, but it doesn't resonate. Yeah, it's, it's wooden and it's, yeah, yeah it's bullcrap. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, see, we're in the era of we've been for a long time in the TED Talk era. People know they've got, there's an element of performance in it. Yes. But you can learn that and you can learn what your personal style is. Not everyone's Richard Branson, but yeah. there's a way of bringing your story and, that's part of the work, you know, and it's really time-consuming. Yeah. And that's the problem. You know, executives just want to go, right, someone's handed me the speech, I'll read it. But when they get into it, they go, God, this is hard. Yeah. It's probably the most important work that you'll do because if you're going to bother standing up there in front of your staff or your stakeholders or an AGM, you should be powerful and impactful. Yeah. And, and look, some people, I guess, do it naturally and others um, standing up in front of people strikes the fear of God into them. Um, and one of the things you said before about people's comfort level with telling a story, this is a really interesting time, you know, with things like LinkedIn where you've got this intersection of personal brand and company brands as well. So I'm wondering, are you, have you experienced clashes where the company wants someone to do something or say something and the person goes, oh, that doesn't sit well with me or it doesn't, mm-hmm. doesn't sit well with my personal brand that I'm trying to cultivate? Not so much that than the company saying we need this person has the right you know credentials and and the right um, title <laughs> and we want this person to say these things and be the spokesperson and it's just not going to work it's incongruent I mean the personal brand thing it's it's not a growth area for executives that are particularly in big companies where they're not allowed to yeah. you know you've got to represent the organization many of them have social media policies around what you can and can't do even in your personal life because there, there is no real differentiation anymore um i mean i've worked with an organization where someone who posted on their private facebook page an opinion about an indigenous customer now, it was a private Facebook page, but it said on that Facebook page where they worked and then that became a media issue and they were sacked because they'd breached the policy even though it wasn't on the company page. Yeah, okay. So we're going to jump ahead here into some, some of these murky waters of 
Twitter trolls mm. and keyboard warriors. Does the company have a right to um, set the set the agenda for people's opinions and what they can and can't say? Because you know, it gets to a point where okay, that's safe, but people aren't being true to themselves, and this is where I guess I get to this question of there's a clash. You know, if the company says we're going to take a knee for Black Lives Matter and someone doesn't want to because they don't think it's right and they're compelled to, this can be a media story but also a problem internally for the company. Yes, and it's whether you then have to look at yourself and go, well, should I be with an organisation that feels strongly about this issue if I don't support it? So then you've got two choices. I mean, you can leave or be silent. But, you know, coming out against it is going to embarrass the company if you have put... I mean, the other thing is just not to have where you work on your Facebook page so you can get around that. You can have a different handle for Twitter where you're not representing an organisation. And, look, that still may end up problematic, but I think then you've got to look at your own values. And certainly companies are looking at that. I mean, there's no... There's very few people, I think, who would hire someone without having a look at what their social media is saying. Yeah, That's why I've deliberately kept off social media all these years. Oh, but then that's suspicious. Why aren't you? What do you believe? What do you you do? Oh, no. Well, that that, you could, yeah, you don't want to get into that. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I was watching the cricket the other night. So this is where I think it becomes problematic for companies or organisations and people. And everyone took a knee for Black Lives Matter. Whether you believe it or not, different story, but one guy didn't. Now, that became a media story. Um, so does a company have to come out and say, well, that's his belief, he's allowed to do that? Um, and if people in the team then say, no, we didn't like that, th- these taking social positions for companies, to me, has always been problematic. Mm. And I'm just wondering how companies are trying to navigate this proactively these days. I think, I mean, it starts with companies really looking at themselves to go, what do we believe in, where are we aligned and having values because the public wants to see that. You know, we're seeing more and more sort of shareholder activations and, um, you know, where people are saying we won't stand for it and if, you know, the board won't stand by values that they say the company stands, we will get rid of the board, you know, or insisting. I mean, you know, we recently had a 20-something who sued a superannuation company for not, you know, investing in sort of climate forward-looking investments because it's going to affect the future. And I think that the the conversation is so different today than it was when the executives of some of these organisations were young, Um, certainly on what's acceptable in workplace behaviour. And so where, you know, where does it, Stop. I mean, you've got to have values and you've got to be able to ex- express them. Um, you've got to be able to attract new generations into your workforce by saying this is what we stand for. Yeah. Now, if someone doesn't, I mean, I often, I do think there is a hypersensitivity by organisations to negative anything, especially with social media, where yep. you're not going to be able to please everyone all the time. There yep. are going to be people who don't do the right thing. You know, are you going to overreact and go, we need to get rid of all of it? Or are you going to, you know, carefully say, well, that's not within our values, but here's another side to the story. Most don't have the appetite for the argument. They just want to have happy customers and have everything looking great. Yes. Yeah, and that's also something that I wanted to get into from the recent experience here in Melbourne with, you know, what's been happening with the lockdown and some of the mistakes that were made, police force, government, you know, everyone made a few errors that I'm sure they wish they could change. But at the time when those errors were made, it was very much a, um, uh, like a, 
Officer Barb Brady from South Park, you know, nothing to see here, move along. You know, we back our people. They've done the right thing. And there were some horrible missteps by people and yet their department head or uh, colleagues came out and said, no, this is perfectly normal. You know, is this spin? Is this something that people could do better and say, you know what, this was a mistake, but we backed that person and we want to see them continue on in their role? Because I think it looks horrible. Mm. I mean, at the front end, I always say to clients, let's look at what the consequences might be. And I have had, you know, clients decide not to talk about food tampering issues, not to come clean because it was a particular time frame and a particular, you know, the risk they felt when they looked at the was low. Yeah. And I say, okay, but you look at what happens if that comes out after and you haven't been transparent and you haven't been honest. So you can only guide, I'm not the arbiter of the ethics. Yeah. I'm just the one who says, These, this is what you need to weigh up. Yeah. And, if, and, and so I think it's the same in those situations where at the time, you know, the government goes, well, is it worth it or not? And when you look at it, yes, a couple of careers have changed course, but really... The government's still there. Yep. Um, and approval ratings are pretty high. Very high. And so, you know, you have this polarisation. I mean, that's been all over the media anyway in terms of, you know, where we've got um, societal views being very polarised. Centrists are not as present. Apart from our Prime Minister. Yes. <laughs> but even there you can find both edges of, yeah, you know, true. who yeah. can't stand him and who's very loyal. Yep. And that's happening, you know, all over the world and if you want to suck it up and say that's just how it is and we're happy to live with that, you know, I think there's that just that question of, okay, but if they don't, what's going to happen? And I think in this case the government probably said nothing's going to happen. Yeah. And, you know, positional politics is one thing, but people are also taking these positions on brands and companies and issues like climate change, you know, is a big, big one at the moment. Do companies... We've touched on it before, but do companies need to take a position and say we are uh, taking action? Does that actually contribute to more sales? Or by not doing anything, does it actually denigrate the brand and in the long run contribute to less good staff coming on board? I mean, for me, sometimes it's hard to see the wood for the trees because I'm not in that, but I puzzle about it all the time. And it depends whether you're doing it. And I, I go back to that word, which really for me is key, authenticity. Yeah. And I, I again, I often say to clients who will do, who will talk about doing a campaign for, you know, a social good campaign and going, this is what we want to do. We want to make a donation or we want to, you know, get involved with the cause or I go do it because you believe in it, not because you want not media attention sig- for it. virtue signaling. That's right. Yeah. You may end up getting coverage or you may end up getting lauded for it but you may you, you shouldn't do it for that reason and I think it's the same with that are your values because you actually believe you want to do something good for the climate for you know or for the um, women's rights or for indigenous rights you know is this something that is congruent with your brand then go forth create your policies and that's what protects you when things go wrong we often say the first thing we ask in a crisis is what's your policy on this and it's shocking how many times there isn't really one. Yeah. Okay. We'll get into crisis management. I did want to just touch on this overlap then between companies and advertising. Now, mm. in the last 10 years, I've lost my mind every time I've seen an ad come on TV and a company starts with, we believe. Yes. Do we care what companies believe? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you know, I think that obviously 
for, well, for a lot of organisations, they're researched, you know, for millions of dollars of what people will respond to. Yeah. Um, you know, whether they do or not. I mean, it's funny, you know, my sister who works in um, more on the advertising side of life, you know, we used to look at the newspaper and she would look at all the ads where the place two was saying what and I'd look at the copy. <laughs> so, you know, what you say about yourself, I mean, it's brand building Yeah. when you say you believe something. But I know for, for you know, my own family, my teenagers are pretty, or particularly my daughters, very aware of who's doing what and, you know, where they're getting their their staff from and whether they're using slave labour and are they climate, you know, active and so it's I think it's important to some people yeah uh, enough people that the researchers might decide you know where that is but that's probably not my space because in the earned space it goes so what yeah unless you can prove what you're doing unless you can tell me a good story unless you can tell me something different I don't care what you believe what about startups do they need to then try and maximize PR opportunities or Mm. and and for you know traditionally I thought PR was an expensive avenue to pursue in terms of um, eyeballs or people reading about you. Do startups have any strategies that you can recommend for getting PR and using PR wisely? Startups is uh, a, a trickier area because it's the we're gonna and the media likes to know what are you doing not what are you going to do. Yeah. So unless you are in a really radical new space, yes. if you're just a me too, you're going to be compared to, and that's the hardest thing of telling a startup story. The media want to know what is it, you know, and then you have to go, it's like, and so then you're already in the right. first story going to be compared to someone. So that's the most important part of framing that narrative at the beginning of what are you delivering? What is this for? Um, and then, you know, if it's a bit, I mean, and then going after your target market. So I think one of the least appreciated, everyone wants to be in financial review in business, but industry media and these publications, interestingly, where the church and state line is more and more blurred, but it's, they're cheaper to advertising than the film. Yeah. And then you can do something that's advertorially driven. You can go after your target market directly and you can explain exactly where you sit but making sure that you've got that narrative right before you go out. So you're compared to the right kind of successful companies is really important. And I also still think with startups, I mean, I've, I've had one that, you know, was fortunate enough to get written up in the Finn and the Australian. And I think they're just one of the seven or five touch points that a customer needs to have about your brand before they pick up the phone or send you an email and call. So mm-hmm. to me, for a startup, it was always very helpful and very desirable especially, as you could say, on the website, as seen in, yes. which is which is great. It's great sort of verification that you're on the right path. Um, but it doesn't necessarily deliver value for money um, with clients knocking down the door the next day sort of thing. It's not a sales tool. Yeah. It's a brand tool. Yeah. And, you know, I think that on a good day, people say that the value of editorial over advertising is five times. Yes. So you believe what a journalist has written and if you're written up, then you're important enough and you're on the right track. Yeah. So no, people won't be going, oh, I need this today. That's the job of advertising. It's a different job. Yeah. And if you've got no searchable editorial, this first thing I do, I look for you know Google News on a new company um, and if there's nothing, then it's like, well, why, why aren't they being talked about? Yeah. Yeah, I certainly believe some of the journalists I've been fortunate enough to interview, like Alan Kohler and mm-hmm. Supratim Atikari, um, some of the others coming through, I'm not sure I'd believe some of the stuff they're they're writing. There's a this this crossover of fake news does seem to permeate a lot of the the 
the online space as well and you wonder what is news and what is advertorial these yes. days. That's a very blurred line, I guess. Very. To, yeah. And it's very different to it's, and it offends me as a you know a former journalist sometimes. But at the same time, you know, I advise clients saying you won't get in if you don't do it this way. But we make it you know you've still got to tell the story in an authentic way. You've still got to differentiate yourself, and you've still got to make it more than just hey, grand sale, grand sale. Let's go back to your career. Tell us a, a story of a moment PR went horribly wrong. Gosh, <laughs> this has caught me on the I. Don't know that I have an on-the-spot story. I, look, there's been no huge disasters. It's more been called into other people's disasters. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, there's been so many of those, <laughs> <laughs> but usually I'm, I am sworn to confidentiality over them. But more the other. I mean, recently I had a, a case of a um, a developer who. And this is kind of interesting because he was being chased by a current affair um, over unpaid invoices to subcontractors now it turns out that in the building industry in the development industry um, those invoices are then paid by subcontractors to subcontractors so the developer paid the builder but the builder who went bust didn't hand on those right. uh, the, the payments to yeah. the subcontractor so the time that I was called in there was already the subcontractors who weren't paid going into this development and pulling out kitchens and destroying things with the camera there makes for good tv it perfect tv but having to wind that back then and go this is not the responsibility you know the, and and having to prove yourself um as a business person and go hang on this isn't us and here's that you know it's a bit humiliating it's in a, a way unfair. absolutely yeah. you're having to hand over bank statements and and the interesting thing is sometimes with those tabloid shows they want that story yeah. so then they went somewhere else and started looking hang on but haven't they done this somewhere else yeah okay so it's that kind of thing where it gets very complicated to be unwound and the journalists really are like sometimes like pit bulls, you know, with a bone and it's very hard to take the bone away. Yeah. But, you know, keeping respectful and, and, um, and transparent and that's the other thing. Most people are terrified so they don't want to, they'll say no comment, no comment. We go, hang on, let's look at what the story is. What have they got? What are they looking for? And are people resentful of having to bring in an agency to deal with something when you do have these rabid journalists who create a mountain out of a molehill? And sometimes they really are mountains out of a molehill in terms of a business story. Are people who bring you in resentful that they have to bring you in or they see you as a, a, a knight in shining armour sort of thing? Yeah, they're, they're absolutely panicked and desperate and want you to make it go away. Yeah. And sometimes you say, I can't make it go away, but saying nothing will make it worse so you can make something better that would have been worse. Um, sometimes you can, you, you know, the, the situation is a terrible situation which is going to be difficult for the organisation or for the person, but actually explaining or putting a narrative together rather than no comment or rather than just something that's like a lie, you know, I apologise for my actions, but actually giving some kind of context Again, doesn't make it go away, but it makes the public sometimes go, okay, so there is a Bit of there's background or there's empathy or yeah. there's another chance or, yeah. And what about then the other side, something where you've been called in, you thought it was just, you know, unsalvageable, mm. but you've been able to salvage something for a business or, or and make, the, make something go away that was brewing? Yeah, yeah. The- we have that a lot. And it all depends on the appetite of the, either the, usually it's the CEO or the board, to actually 
do it the way we say it should be done because that they're their own worst enemies. It's the fear of what might happen. And there always is risk. So you go in saying, right, here's the risk, but here's the strategy. Yeah. And then you go forward that way. And interestingly, I mean, I was working with one organisation around the time of the the Royal Commission into Banking, you know, with, and every sort of financial institution at that time was getting advice because they all had skeletons. No one was sure where this wide-ranging inquiry was going to go after. And, um, and, you know, you can give advice and it takes a bit to convince people to take it because they're afraid. But in this particular case, it was like, you've, you've actually got an answer to this. Yeah. This is not something that you have to worry about. You've got to express it, tell your story. And the board said, no, they were too scared. And so it ended up being a very unfair, one-sided piece. Yes. And they're furious. And then the amount of time and resource that's spent mopping up the bad publicity rather than, you know, the risk that it could go okay. Yeah. To me, it's crazy, but it's their choice. And then what about the, the fuel underneath a lot of these fires, that, back to these Twitter-type mm. conversations? And I see, again, I see it from afar, but I perceive a lot of businesses knee-jerk to a lot of Twitter noise and, and sort of micro issues that they turn into macro issues by responding and getting it wrong on these digital platforms, any sort of lessons from Twitter that companies can look at apart from don't go there? Yeah, it depends whether you want to play. If you're going to play, you need to know that there are lots of, you know, there's trolls and you're going to potentially, depending on the issue, you know, there's bullying. There's If, you, if you're going to play, you need to know that there's going to be the other side or don't play. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because a place like LinkedIn has now become so careful and everybody is so careful not to have an opinion and just put up, oh, you know, great to announce that we won yes. whatever. It's, yeah. you know, become much more of an advertising field and debate. Yeah. And even Twitter is starting to go that way as well. People going, I can't handle it. Um, but for companies, not people, it goes back to what are your policies? Yep. What do you stand for? Yep. Are you congruent? And if you can stand up for it, then that you're fine. Then there's some cohesion in the way you tackle Twitter responses yeah, and Twitter posts. Absolutely. It's interesting. That LinkedIn one is fascinating. I'm not prolific on it, but I'm there a lot. And I got a couple of dressing downs during this pandemic for expressing some views. Um, and people wanted to label me. But it is a fascinating place where you put out something and instead of people going the argument they take a position and they fire rockets at you. So I think LinkedIn can be a dangerous place as well. Um, it can be. And Facebook, I mean, I couldn't believe during the pandemic the vitriol and, and even watching my friends, uh, my American friends during the lead up to the election where these were friends of friends. I said to one of my friends, um, wow, I was watching, you know, someone had put up a reposted a New York Times piece and it was pro-Biden and these people just went, I said, these are your friends. She said, they're family. <laughs> I was like, That's worse. <laughs> I was like, That's right. Um, so into the companies now, your, your businesses, um, some people are really good at starting them. Some people are really good at managing them. You've obviously got skills at both ends of the business spectrum. What, are your, what do you think your core strengths are in your businesses? Uh, or the core strength is storytelling. Yeah. And being able to think a few steps ahead of what might happen so that the area of, you know, sort of disaster or, or you know, looking if it's vulnerable. But it is the storytelling. 
Um, in terms of running a business, I think I've had to learn the hard way. So I had no real instinct for numbers <laughs> and no, I don't think I've ever had a, I think this is the first time I've been forced now by our chairman to put together a marketing plan yeah. because that just, it was through referral. I've got really good networks and I have always had this idea that if people aren't happy, so when I started, when I was on my own, on my own at the beginning, um, I would would say, not that I ever had, I think I've had it once where someone wasn't happy with the result of the campaign and said, you pay what you think it's worth um, because people need to see value. And consequently, I've taken clients four or five places where they'll still engage. So I'm doing something right. Yeah. Um, but it's the honest, the honesty, firstly. A lot of PR companies I knew going in were fixated on reports, yep. great things that you could weigh, explaining where they went and where they've shot out and whatever, and, you know, there you go, sorry, that press release didn't go anywhere, where for us the media relations has always been about that we think this is the story, we test it, if it's not getting results, we'll talk to the journalists, have the relationships to go, why isn't it interesting? Yeah. Not now, not today, or not at all. Yes. And then pivot and go back to the client and go, right, this isn't, you know, it's the conversation, not going, oh, now you go back to what you're doing and I'll step into this dark room, play some magic and see if it lands. Um, and look, sometimes you don't get the results that you want, but it's important to either understand why or have the relationship to go, can I try again a different way? You know, and, and keep going until you get some kind of result. I just don't give up. And there hasn't been a company where you just go back and say, sorry, your company's just boring. No. Well, it, that may start at the beginning. You go, God, what are we going to do with this? But that's the work of trying to explain. So the education process from our end goes, right, you want PR, we're going to explain to you how the media works. And there's always this light bulb moment. In fact... We did with one a major organisation with a, a, a um, C-suiter who we'd only got through the first, we do a, um, with the media training, a session called The Views of the News where Steve and I have a video of a whole lot of um, interviews with the gatekeepers of the media, big names from the media who explain in their point of view what they're looking for. And we'd only got through that bit that was the first half hour of the session of what makes news and he goes, well, we're already on the wrong track. Like he just realised nothing that they'd put together was going to fly. Yeah. So it's getting through, um, you know, where advertising agents go, yep, yep, we can do that. We can sell that message if that's what you want. Where I, I go, I can't, I can't do that for you. So they'll either say, okay, thank you, we'll try again in six months or the story's not ready. Lots of times, for example, the media depends on case studies and there are lots of industries where, it's sensitive um, yeah. or they've got confidentiality. Yeah. And so we've got to get around that somehow. And if you can't, then we say, well, now's not the right time to do this. Yeah. Yeah, it's inter It's fascinating, actually. Um, why do you think you've succeeded to date? I mean, you've said the networks, you've said yeah. you're, you're good at storytelling, but you also need to have the rigour to be able to turn up every day and keep doing mm -hmm. it. Um, so you obviously like that and you're growing a couple of your businesses and brands and companies yourself. So... Why, why you continue to, to thrive, do you think? I think fundamentally because I'm an optimist, so I do think everything's kind of interesting and has, you know, value to it. Um, and I'm enthusiastic about learning about new things. So I love that idea of coming into an industry going, gosh, I didn't know didn't that. Know that. Yeah. I've learned something. Yep. Um, I mean, the hardest part with the business, and this is probably not the answer to this question, but just in terms of how you, you charge for what you do, I hate the way that um, consulting is on billable hours. Yeah. I feel like if I can make one call to a reporter and get a story that's going to, you know, shut down your website from interest, I, 
I don't want to charge five minutes or half an hour. You know, it's the value of what you're offering. And that's really hard to cost. Yes. Yeah. And I suppose with some of the stuff you do as well, there are a lot of sliding door moments where a company was heading down one path. You don't know what that outcome would have been, but you then take them on a different path and you get an outcome. But it's really hard to quantify where they were heading versus where they ended up because Mm. of your involvement. So. Yeah, that's right. And I guess that's the other part of I'm very much about, you know, often clients will go, could you put a proposal together, you know, and include KPIs? They're going, no, 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 you need to tell me your KPIs. Like they want, you know, they want you to, and I'm used to the fact of, you know, they'll ask you to tell their story, even though you go, what is your story? Well, you can help us frame that. Now, I probably can do that bit, but KPIs, how do I know what success looks like for you? And yeah. if you can't define it at the beginning, how do we know if we've done a good job? Yes. And that is, in all businesses, the biggest issue, I think. Yeah. Setting the goal posts up front so yes. that you can measure success is, yeah, that's a really hard thing to do. And for a lot of companies, they don't actually know where to start, I guess. That's right. And yeah. particularly with PR where you go, well, uh, and sometimes they'll say, well, we want a guaranteed number of stories. So I can't do that. But I can tell you that I will, I, you know, I'll work on the messaging. I'll make sure that the story is authentic to you. I will do everything to get that story up. And if I can't, I will come back try and re-examine why it wasn't, give you the feedback and try again. So, Yeah. And, I mean, I, I suppose I look at it and go, you know, if someone says 10 stories is a measure of successful outcome, by the same token you go, okay, well, there's 10 stories, but none of it crashed your website. But we did one piece that crashed your website. You only got one story, but you got 20 times the result. I mean, it's a hard thing for people to get through their head when they're in a company, got to go back to the board or their P&L and said, oh, this is how I quantify the result on my P&L. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's about, I mean, that's the interesting thing. And again, it's the nuance of the difference between selling. So we've got a, a client um, and they're called Hillco Global. They run, They have a whole lot of areas of expertise, including um, selling uh, stock. So, for example, at the moment, we've got an issue where the duty-free stores have stock that is out of date, in inverted commas. Yes. Because it's, you know, during the pandemic, everything closed down. Yeah. And, of course, they need to have the latest and the greatest. Yeah, yeah. So what happens to it? Hillco come in, buy it, and then sell it on an auction site. Yeah. They haven't done much in the past with that direct consumer communication. And, you know, the story was on Channel 7 News nationwide and then run the through website a crashed. Few- well, <laughs> this time it, it didn't, but the first time we did it with them, it was extraordinary. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily position them as a thought leader. So we also then work with them to go, well, hang on, what is your strategy in terms of dealing with retailers who have this situation? Yeah, right. How do you find buyers for this? And that story is kind of more of a retail business story. It doesn't crash the website, but it positions them in a way that they really need to be positioned. You've obviously faced a few challenges in, in life and business, you know, you're gone a few roadblocks with with work tried a few things some have probably blown up in your face others have have, have worked why do you keep pushing through what's the trait that makes you keep busting down walls to keep driving forward rather than going you know what i'll just go get a job (laughs) um i love i think I, i really love working for myself or being able to set make my own decisions around what's okay and what's not okay that i can say no that I can be experimental or entrepreneurial, try a new program, see how it works. You know, that Steve and I are constantly reinventing something. I don't want someone telling me what to do with my time or that yeah. I must 
charge a certain number of billable hours. I just, I love doing it for myself. That's freedom. Mm-hmm. So, look, we're going to finish off on the quick fire round. Um, who's been a professional inspiration to you? Well, probably Graham Samuel. Yep. Yeah, in, in terms of ethics and success and moderated ideas and intelligence and support. Very smart man. Kindest thing anyone has ever said to you. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm way too broad. Um, your children are amazing. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> if you were to go anywhere in the world now for lunch, where would it be? Oh, Paris Left Bank. Although not in the pandemic. <laughs> Pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic. Left Bank, Paris. Lovely. Favourite movie? When Harry Met Sally. Can you believe it? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> Favourite singer? Billy Joel. I'm so 80s and tragic. Billy Joel's brilliant. I saw him in oh, Memorial Drive 1992, peak of his powers. Wow. Yeah, I thought it was a great, great concert. What culture fascinates you? Indian. What advice would you give to young female entrepreneurs? Oh, now this is the one that I keep having the argument with my, my daughters, but, you know, you can't, don't think that the, the way has been paved. There have been sacrifices that you haven't seen and we're not there yet. So keep fighting, understand where the roadblocks are and overcome them. Brilliant. Lara, thank you for your time away from all your... Rolls, good luck with the continued expansion in 2021. And thank you very much for being on Discipline. Thank you.